0: Section 6 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2, The Metaphysicians, Part 3. Hegel has given the name of acosmism, or negation of the world, to this form of pantheism, interpreting it as a doctrine that absorbs all concrete reality and individuality in the absolute unity of the divine essence. No misconception could be more complete. Differentiation is the very soul of Spinoza's system. It is indeed more open to the charge of excessive dispersion than of excessive centralization. Power, which is God's essence, means no more than the realization through all eternity of all possibilities of existence with no end or aim, but just the process of infinite production itself. There is indeed a nominal identification between the material processes of extension and the ideal processes of thought, but this amounts to no more than a restatement, in abstract terms, of the empirical truth that there is a close connection between body and mind. Like the double aspect theory, the parallelistic theory, the materialistic theory, the theory of interaction, and the theory of more or less complete reciprocal independence, it is a mere verbalism, telling us nothing that we do not know before. Or, if there is more, it consists of the very questionable assumption that body and mind must come in somewhere to fill up what would otherwise be blank possibilities of existence? And this, like other metaphysical assumptions, is an illegitimate generalization from experience. The ideas of space and time as filled-up continua supply the model on which the whole universe must be constructed. Like them, it must be infinite and eternal, but so to speak at a higher power As in them, every part must be determined by the position of all other parts, with the determination put at a logical instead of at a descriptive value. Corresponding to their infinitely varied differentiation of position and quantity, there must be an infinite differentiation of concrete content. And finally, the laws of the universe must be demonstrable by the same a priori mathematical method that has been so successfully applied to continuous quantity. The geometrical form into which Spinoza has thrown his philosophy unfortunately restricts the number of readers, always rather small, that it might otherwise attract. People feel themselves mystified, wearied, and cheated by the appearance, without the reality of logical demonstration, and the repulsion is aggravated by the barbarous scholasticism with which, unlike Bacon, Hobbes, and Descartes, he peppers his pages. Yet, like the Greek philosophers, he is much more modern, more on the true line of developing thought than they are. But to get at the true kernel of his teaching, we must, like Goethe, disregard the logical husks in which it is wrapped up. And as it happens— Spinoza has greatly facilitated this operation by printing his most interesting and suggestive discussions in the form of scolia, explanations, and appendices. Even these are not easy reading, but to quote his own pathetic words, if the way of salvation lay ready to hand and could be found without great toil, would it be neglected by nearly every one? but all glorious things are as difficult as they are rare. Some of his expositors have called Spinoza a mystic, and his philosophy has been traced in part at least to the mystical pantheism of certain medieval Jews. In my opinion, this is a mistake, and I will now proceed to show that the phrases on which it rests are open to an interpretation more consistent with the rational foundations of the whole system. The things that have done most to fasten the character of a mystic on Spinoza are his identification of virtue with the knowledge and love of God, and his theory, so suggestive of Christian theology at its highest flight, that God loves himself with an infinite love. That, like Plato and Matthew Arnold, he should value religion as a means of popular moralization might seem natural enough, but not except from a mystical motive, that he should apparently value morality merely as a help to the religious life. On examination, however, it appears that the beatific vision of this pantheist offers no experience going beyond the limits of nature and reason. Since God and the universe are one, to know God is to know that we are, body and soul, necessary modes of the two attributes— extension and thought, by which the infinite power, which is the essence of the universe, expresses itself for us. To love God is to recognize our own vitality as a portion of that power, welcoming it with grateful joy as a gift from the universe whence we come. And to say that God loves himself with an infinite love is merely to say that the attribute of thought, eternally divides itself among an infinity of thinking beings, through whose activity the universe keeps up a delighted consciousness of itself. Spinoza declares by the very name of his great work that, for him, the philosophical problem is essentially a problem of ethics, being, indeed, no other than the old question first started by Plato, How to Reconcile Disinterestedness with Self-Interest, and his Metaphysical System is really an elaborate mechanism for proving that, on the profoundest interpretation, their claims coincide. His great contemporary Hobbes had taught that the fundamental impulse of human nature is the will for power, and Spinoza accepts this idea to the fullest extent in proclaiming power to be the very stuff of which we and all other things are made. But he parts company with the English philosopher in his theory of what it means. On his view, it is an utter illusion to suppose that to gratify such passions as pride, avarice, vanity, and lust is to acquire or exercise power. For strength means freedom, self-determination, and no man can be free— whose happiness depends on a fortuitous combination of external circumstances or on the consent of other persons whose desires are such as to set up a conflict between his gratification and theirs. Real power means self-realization, the exercise of that faculty which is most purely human, that is to say of thought under the form of reason. In pleading for the subordination of the self seeking desires to reason, Spinoza repeats the lessons of moral philosophy in all ages and countries since its first independent constitution. In connecting the interests of morality with the interests of science as such, he follows the tradition of Athenian thought. In interpreting pantheism as an ethical enthusiasm of the universe, he returns to the creed of Stoicism and strikes the keynote of Wordsworth's loftiest poetry. In fixing each man's place in nature as one among the infinite individuations of divine power, he repeats another Stoic idea, with this difference, however, that among the Stoics it was intimately associated with their teleology, with the doctrine that everything in nature has a function without whose performance the universe would not be complete. Whereas Spinoza, following Bacon and Descartes, utterly abjures final causes as an anthropomorphism, an intrusion of human interests, into a universe whose sole perfection is to exhaust the possibilities of existence. And herein lies his justification of evil, which the Stoics could only defend on aesthetic grounds, as enhancing the beauty of moral heroism by contrast and conflict. If I am asked, he says, why God did not create all men of such a character as to be guided by reason alone, my answer is because he had materials enough to create all things, from the highest to the lowest degree of perfection. Perfection with him, meaning reality, this account of evil— and of error also, points to the theory of degrees of reality, revived and elaborated in our own time by Mr. F. H. Bradley, involving a correlative theory of illusion. Now, the idea of illusion, although older than Plato, was first applied on a great scale in Plato's philosophy, of whose influence on 17th century thought this is not the only example. We shall find it to some extent countervailed by a revived aristotelian current in the work of the metaphysician who now remains to be considered Leibniz G W Leibniz 1646 to 1716 son of a professor at the university of leipzig is marked by some of the distinguishing intellectual characters of the german genius far more truly than francis bacon this man took all knowledge for his province at once a mathematician, a physicist, a historian, a metaphysician, and a diplomatist. He went to the bottom of whatever subject he touched, and enriched all his multifarious studies with new views or with new facts. And as with other great countrymen of his, the final end of all this curiosity and interest was to combine and reconcile. One of his ambitions was to create a universal language of philosophy— by whose means its problems were to be made a matter of mathematical demonstration, another to harmonize ancient with modern speculation, a third, the most chimerical of all, to compose the differences between Rome and Protestantism, a fourth, partly realized long after his time, to unite the German Calvinists with the Lutherans. In politics, he tried with equal unsuccess to build up a confederation of the Rhine as a barrier against Louis XIV, and to divert the ambition of Louis himself from encroachments on his neighbors to the conquest of Egypt. It seems probable that no intellect of equal power was ever applied in modern times to the service of philosophy, and this power is demonstrated not, as with other metaphysicians, by constructions of more or less contestable value, however dazzling the ingenuity they may display, but by contributions of the first order to positive science. It is now agreed that Leibniz discovered the differential calculus independently of Newton, and what is more, that the formulation by which alone it has been made available for fruitful application was his exclusive invention. In physics, he is a pioneer of the conservation of energy in geology he starts the theory that our planet began as a glowing molten mass derived from the sun and the modern theory of evolution is a special application of his theory of development intellect alone however does not make a great philosopher character also was required and leibniz's character was quite unworthy of his genius ambitious and avaricious a courtier and a time-server, he neither made truth for its own sake a paramount object, nor would he keep on terms with those who cherished a nobler ideal. After cultivating Spinoza's acquaintance, he joined in the cry of obloquy raised after his death and was mean enough to stir up religious prejudice against Newton's theory of gravitation. Of the calamity that embittered his closing days, we may say with confidence that it could not possibly have befallen Spinoza. On the accession of the elector of Hanover to the English crown as George I, Leibniz sought for an invitation to the court of St. James. Apparently the prince had not found him very satisfactory as a state official, and had reason to believe that Leibniz would have liked to exchange his office of historiographer at Hanover for a better appointment at Vienna greatness in other departments could not recommend one, whom he knew only as a negligent and perhaps unfaithful servant to the favor of such an illiterate master. Anyhow, the English appointment was withheld, and the worn-out encyclopedist succumbed to disease and vexation combined. The only mourner at his funeral was his secretary Eckhart, who hastened to solicit the reversion of the offices left vacant by his chief's decease. A single theory of Leibniz has attained more celebrity than any one utterance of any other philosopher, but that fame is due to the undying fire in which it has been enveloped by the mocking irony of Voltaire. Everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Such is the famous text as a satire on which Candide was composed. Yet whatever value Voltaire's objections to optimism may possess tells nearly as much against voltaire himself as against his unfortunate butt for after all believing as he did in a god who combined omnipotence with perfect goodness he could not any more than leibniz evade the obligation of reconciling the divine character with a divine work on a priori grounds the german philosopher seems to have an incontrovertible case a perfect being must have made the best possible world. The only question is what we mean by goodness and by possibility. Spinoza had solved the problem by identifying goodness with existence. It is enough that the things we call evil are possible. The infinite power of nature would be a self-contradiction were they not realized. Leibniz rejects the pantheistic position in terms but nearly admits it in practice. Evil for him means imperfection, and if God made a world at all, it was bound to be imperfect. The next step was to call pain an imperfection, which suggests a serious logical deficiency in the optimist, for although in certain circumstances the production of pain argues imperfection in the operator, we are not entitled to argue— that wherever there is pain, there must be imperfection. Another plea is the necessity of pain as a punishment for crime, or more generally, as a result of moral freedom. Such an argument is only open to the believers in free will. A world of free and responsible agents, they urge, is infinitely more valuable than a world of automata, and it is not too dearly purchased, even at the cost of such suffering as we witness. The argument is not very convincing, for liberty of choice in a painless world is quite conceivable. But be it a good or bad argument, although it might appeal to Voltaire, who believed in free will, it could not decently be used by Leibniz, who was a determinist of the strictest type. To make this clear, we must now turn to his metaphysical system. Bacon, Descartes, and Spinoza, disagreeing widely on other subjects, were agreed in discountenancing the study of final causes. Bacon, apparently, from dislike of the idea that the perfect adaptation of all things to the service of man rendered superfluous any efforts to make them more serviceable still. Descartes, from his devotion to the mathematical method which was more applicable to a system of mechanical causation. Spinoza, for the same reason, and also from his disbelief in a personal god. Leibniz, on the contrary, felt deeply impressed by a famous passage in Plato's Fido where Socrates, opposing the philosophy of teleology to the philosophy of mechanism, desiderates an explanation of nature as designed with a view to the highest good. But Leibniz did not go so far as Plato. Mediating between the two methods, he taught that all is done for the best, but also that all is done through an unbroken series of efficient causes. At the same time, these causes are only material in appearance. In reality, They are spiritual beings. There is no such thing as dead matter. The universe consists of living forces all through. The general idea of force probably comes from that infinite power of which, according to Spinoza, the whole universe is at once the product and the expression, or it may have been suggested by Plato's incidental identification of being with action. But Leibniz found his type of force in human personality, which, following the lead of Aristotle rather than of Plato, he conceived as an entelechy, or realized actuality and a first substance. After years of anxious reflection, he chose the far happier name of monad, a term originally coined by Bruno, but not, as would appear, directly borrowed from him by the German metaphysician. According to Leibniz, the monads, or ultimate elements of existence, are constituted by the two essential properties of psychic life, perception and appetency. In this connection, two points have to be made clear. What he calls bare monads, that is, the components of what is known as inorganic matter, although percipient, are not conscious of their perceptions. In his language, they do not apperceive, and he endeavors to prove that such a mentality is possible by a reference to our own experience. We hear the roaring of waves on the seashore, but we do not hear the sound made by the falling of each particle of water. And yet, we certainly must perceive it in some way or other, since the total volume of sound is made up of those inaudible impacts." He overlooks the conceivable alternative that the immediate antecedent of our auditory sensations is a cerebral disturbance, and that this must attain a certain volume in order to produce an effect on our consciousness. The other point is that the appetency of a monad does not mean an active impulse, but a search for more and more perceptions, a continuous widening of its cognitive range. In short, each monad is a little Leibniz, forever increasing the sum of its knowledge. At no stage does that knowledge come from experience. The monad has no windows, no communication of any kind with the external world. But each reflects the whole universe, knowing what it knows by mere introspection. And each reflects all the others at a different angle the angles varying from one another by infinitesimal degrees, so that in their totality they form a continuous series of differentiated individuals. And the same law of infinitesimal differentiation is observed by the series of progressive changes through which the monads are ever passing, so that they keep exact step the continuity of existence being unbroken in the order of succession as in the order of coexistence. Evidently, there is no place for free will in such a system, and that Leibniz, with his relentless fatalism, should not only admit the eternal punishment of predestined sinners, but even defend it as morally appropriate, obliges us to condemn his theology as utterly irrational or utterly insincere. In this system, animal and human souls are conceived as monads of superior rank, occupying a central and commanding position among a multitude of inferior monads, constituting what we call their bodies, and changing paripassu with them. The correspondence of their respective states being, according to Leibniz, of such a peculiar intimate character, that the phenomena of sensation and volition seem to result from a causal reaction instead of from a mechanical adjustment, such as we can imagine to exist between two clocks so constructed and set as to strike the same hour at the same time. This theory of the relations between body and soul is known to philosophy as the system of pre-established harmony. It may be asked, how every monad can possibly reflect every other monad when we do not know what is passing in our own bodies, still less what is passing all over the universe. The answer consists in a convenient distinction between clear and confused perceptions, the one constituting our actual and the other our potential knowledge. A more difficult problem is how to explain how any particular monad, Leibniz or another, can consistently be a monadologist rather than a solipsist, believing only in its own existence. Here, as usual, the deus ex machina comes in. Following Descartes, I think of God as a perfect being, whose idea involves his existence with, of course, the power, will, and wisdom to create the best possible world. A universe of monads, which again by its perfect mutual adjustments proves that there is a god. A more serious and indeed absolutely insuperable objection arises from the definition of the monads as nothing but mutually reflecting entities. For even an infinity of little mirrors with nothing but each other to reflect must at once collapse into absolute vacuity." and with their disappearance their creator also disappears. God, the supreme monad, as we are told, has only clear perceptions, but the clearness is of no avail when he has nothing to perceive but an absolute blank. Leibniz rejected the objectivity of time and space, yet the hollow infinity of those blank forms seems, in his philosophy, to have reached the consciousness of itself. End of Section 6